Hi, this is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. Regular listeners will know that Delta Green is naturally our focus most of the time, or at least the adjacent spheres of Lovecraftian horror and spooky gaming. This week, we're breaking away from that rigid format and doing something a little bit different. I'll let Jake explain. All right. So today on the podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not really going to necessarily talk about horror games or Delta Green or uh, you know, the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, we're going to gush a little bit about games that we want to play, but we don't think we'll ever be able to. Tabletop games, that is. So this is the only game I came up with. So I will feverishly think of new ones as you guys take your turns. If you have a good one, good one, it's better than a lot of, you know, hastily come up with one. So yeah, what, what, what is the game? My game is Raiders of Relia, which is a D100... Pulp sandbox game set in the early 1900s. They called the Edwardian era. So basically, from 1900 to World War One. And the premise of it is is that uh, you're not solving mysteries like you do in Call of Cthulhu. You're just like mercenaries and treasure hunters, and you go around the world looking for treasure and tombs to raid but in the process you end up running into monsters of the cthulhu mythos and magic so it's um the number one goal in this game is the acquisition of treasure then that is certainly yeah that was my impression of it so it's it's more like um an osr type game where you don't you're not so concerned about fighting monsters or or whatever you you need to get rich before you can get uh anything else done yeah there's definitely an osr philosophy vein going through it i think uh, I want to say Kevin Crawford, the guy who did... Uh, don't quote me on that. I'm not sure if it's him. But there was a Kevin who's big in the OSR scene who was a consultant on it. And I know the guy RPG Kevin Ross. also Yeah, Kevin Ross. So a different guy. but So I like it because in the G... There are two editions, the Gothic edition and the GM's edition. And the GM's edition has a lot of really cool GMing advice about creating scenarios, creating specifically sandbox games and different types of scenarios, whether that's investigation or you want to try and run dungeon crawls with the game. It also has a lot of stuff about creating new conspiracies and enemy factions and what kind of sinister plots they might be up to. Uh, It's pretty clear Quentin Bauer, who designed the game, read through at least Knight's Black Agents, which is... Another one of my favorite games I've never run or played. Uh, what is some? I want to hear what the advice is because maybe I'll learn something. So he, one of the structures he shows you is the conspiracy map, which is essentially the conspiramid from Knights Black Agents. So it's this whole chart of major players and major operations within the conspiracy. And as you like attack one, you get new leads on the others to follow through and follow up the chain. And there is a big like list. He uses clue webs as well as another thing. Yeah, there's also stuff you might have seen from other online resources like uh, node-based design. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. It looks like something from the Alexandrian there with the clue webs. Yeah, and there's also stuff. like, the I forget who wrote it, but the big list of RPG plots, I think. Uh, something similar is here where he tells you like, if you want to... If, 
if you want to create a cool scenario, you can take like one or two of these and mush them together. So like you have a bunch of people who have circled the wagons and they're trying to defend themselves from mercenaries or a horrible mythos monster. You know, uh, when you mentioned that this was the one you were wanting to talk about earlier, I went and uh, downloaded it and gave it a quick overview. And uh, in addition to all of those creation tools, it looks like a really good source book for the era, the uh, pre-World War One era. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff uh, about the historical period, about what's going on in different countries. And it has something called Circles of Influence, which is sort of an attempt to mechanize that and make it more relevant to player characters. Where the well, it idea... can't be that mechanized if it's pre-World War One. No, it's not... <laughs> Uh, it, in terms of game mechanics, it's pretty loose. It's just a, it's way. a horse-drawn system. Yeah, there you go. Oh, wait, 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 wait! No, I got a better one. Um, all the mech—it's mechanized, but because it's the pre-World War One, all the mechanization is pretty railroaded. <laughs> God damn it! Yes, golf clap for that one. Very good. That's so, good. so the premise is that you have sort of a social network. Uh, that can feed you plot hooks or new leads, or if your character dies, you can create a new character from there. And some of them are like academia, because your character is a professor, and so you know a bunch of other professors and librarians and museum curators, uh, bohemians, artists, and other hedonists. But then you also have like spy networks. You have uh, the big corporations that are operating in like... European colonies, and you might have mercenary companies. You might have like different cults actually as part of your network, because that's sort of a big thing. Is that like this is the golden age of occultism when you have the Theosophists and the Golden Dawn operating? So I just really like that uh, setting and historical flavor to really flesh things out. It's got a very unique feel compared to other Cthulhu games in that sense. Nice. Okay, it sounds pretty good. Um, why would you never run it or play it? I would never run it because, or play it because I've been reading through it and I just feel like in terms of the mechanics, it's just crunchier in a way I don't enjoy compared to Delta Green or even Call of Cthulhu. And to be honest, I've tried, I've gone through the chapter on character creation and I just think it's badly organized there are multiple instances where I feel like you're being asked to make a decision about something before you really understand what the consequences of that are, or even just before it's been explained to you in any capacity. So here's an example. Uh, character creation is a nine-step process. Step two is you choose your social status based on your cultural background, but you don't choose your cultural background until part four. Mm. And at multiple points, it tells you, you get a bunch of skill points at the end of character creation, you're going to spend all these and do something else. And I'm just thinking, why are you why are you giving me these points now to spend many steps down the line? It's like a loop. It sounds, it, a couple times. sounds like maybe, not, not, not that you'd never run it, but that in its current state, it's not usable. Yeah, I think it's a bunch of great GM advice and resources, but in terms of the actual game system, I would much rather kind of hack something out of Delta Green than use what's provided here. You think that um, so is all this other stuff, the stuff that you do like, is that compatible with other game systems like regular old Call of Cthulhu, Delta Green, Pulp Cthulhu then? Oh yeah, for sure. It's based on 
I believe what I've heard is that it's based on Mithras. So it is essentially a BRP system with the numbers filed off. You could easily convert any of this stuff to run with Delta Green or Call of Cthulhu. So I think that's another big point in its favor. And actually, one mechanical thing I do like is that it makes intelligence more useful from character creation uh, than is true in Delta Green. That was also true of um, uh, Call of Cthulhu, I think. Or maybe maybe, maybe I'm confusing intelligence with education. Yeah, I think intelligence has something to do with skill points. I don't quite remember in Call of Cthulhu. In in Call of Cthulhu, it's education gives you skill points, if I I recall correctly. And I don't remember what intelligence does. I think intelligence is mainly useful in uh, Call for Learned Spells. Yeah, well, the, the thing is that here, intelligence does two more things. So your initiative in combat isn't just your flat dexterity. It's the average of your dexterity and your intelligence. And also, if your intelligence is higher than your power, you can use intelligence uh, times five as your starting sanity. That's interesting. I think that um, using intelligence for initiative sort of makes sense in those systems where... Um, there's systems where, you, where they, they ask you to declare actions before doing them, and then you declare in a certain order and you resolve in a certain order. And so I've always thought that if it wasn't so completely unnecessarily complicated, the ideal would be um, declare in reverse intelligence order. So the smartest guy declares last because he already knows what everyone else is going to do, and then resolve in uh, descending dex order. So the fastest guy actually puts his plan into action first. Like uh, God liked that one roll engine. Uh... Yeah. Only, or the person with the most well, like alertness I mean, or whatever. Th- I mean, this 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 is a good example of why I don't think the system actually works in practice. Because if you recall from when we actually played Godlike, it turned out to actually be kind of cumbersome to actually do it that way, especially since so many people ended up having the same stats. Like unless you were unless you were buying extra dice in the stuff that determined your initiative and your ability to act, everyone was pretty much going simultaneously, anyways. It's average, if I recall correctly. Which can also be a problem with Delta Green. So would you play these games if someone else ran them for you? Or are they just going to sit as nostalgic, either nostalgic things on your on your shelf or as just source books that will never get used? Uh, I would definitely like to do something with it to use the setting and the resources. And I would play the hell out of it if someone else ran it for me. It's just I don't really know how I would convince other people to play it without showing them all the gm stuff that uh i guess is supposed to be hidden or is just like toolboxes and things it's uh it's r&d ripoff and duplicate that's why i buy a lot of rpg books yeah exactly like there's just a lot of good ideas i would steal for other stuff or since it's under ogl i don't even have to steal it i can just legally copy that shit around that's a discussion for another time apparently (laughs) our episode on copyright yeah that's just been on my mind recently Tom, thank you for this. Is there any others, any other uh, commentary that we have on this this thing? I'm I'm interested in reading it now to steal some things from it. Um, is there anything else we want to uh, go into on this one? Any lessons we learned? Um, uh, oh, go ahead, Tom. I was just gonna say at one point, uh, Quentin Bauer wrote an update on the on the game's official website, just admitting that it was a victim of Kickstarter success, where he started to want to put more and more stuff into the game. And so he started missing deadlines and then some personal stuff happened in his life. And so it just ended up coming out really late. And I sympathize with all that, but I also look at and feel like there are parts of it where it could have used maybe a little more time in the oven just to figure out what needs to 
stay and what needs to be rearranged a little bit. And in that intervening time, it seems like uh, Chaosium pushed out Pulp Cthulhu to fill the void that this would have... Uh, oh, this They pushed out Pulp Cthulhu, uh, which was a pretty good substitute for this game. I don't think that... I when, I when, Tom, when you first told me about this, it sounded very similar, but I don't think they are anymore. I think that all this setting stuff that specifically ties it to the Belle Epoque is in marked contrast to Pulp Cthulhu, which is more Indiana Jones and World War II. Yeah, well, uh, Pulp Cthulhu, yeah, is, is set in the 30s, so it updates regular Call of Cthulhu from the 20s. So the time period itself isn't the same. It's just in terms of feel, I think, where this thing wanted to be more pulp adventure. It specifically cites like the stories of Robert E. Howard instead of strictly Lovecraft. Whereas, yeah, Pulp Cthulhu is more like actual pulp movies and Indiana Jones and stuff. But it did kind of get the rug pull out, pulled out from under it as the more two-fisted version of Call of Cthulhu. I feel like you could ultimately mash up uh, Dr. Green and Pulp Cthulhu and get something like this. Though. Just with that, the attitude and the tone and the setting and all. Yeah, for sure. It's almost like it's begging for a uh, Office of Naval Intelligence campaign. Uh, I mean, it's it's right there in the title, Raiders of Relia, you know? Yeah, exactly. And there is... It doesn't have advice for players being part of them, but it does have a bunch of, like, spy organizations of the time in the GM's guide. And Oni is one of them. Yeah, no, it sounds... It sounds um, I'm... I'm I, I was, you know, skeptical at first, but now I'm interested in this one. Um, sounds good. Thank uh, you. I think next on our list is Jake. Yeah, um, I figured I would uh, talk to you guys about Burning Wheel a little bit. I picked it up at Gen Con last year from the uh, Lucrane's table. I think I talked to Lucrane himself. I didn't realize it at the time. Um, yeah, so being pretty excited about it. The, yeah, the random person, but the system. Yeah, um, I had been looking into it for a little while, and then just having a chance to like buy it. I actually found it at my local shop uh, when I got back. They had picked it up, and then enter the time in between. Uh, so, Burning Wheel is if you take all the tropes of uh, Dungeons and Dragons and kind of turn it on its head a little bit. Um, it's a game where you can spend a session and a half just creating characters and creating the setting along with your fellow players. Um, and you can come out of it with like a party that is not balanced at all. Um, but that's okay because, uh, it actually is a game that wants you to be challenged, uh, coming out with like an all powerful, you know, my guys, uh, you know, a master of the wizard school and, uh, you know, he's been blah, blah, blah. And then that's great and all, but then, like, you've gone through so many life paths at that point in time that there's not a whole lot of, like, adventuring left for you to do. Um, so it, it uses life path character creation. So one thing, you, you pick an option, say, you know, you start out as a peasant, and then there's paths that come out before you, and you spend a set number of years in time going through, picking a different path, and each life path you get gets you a different set of skills. Um, so... There's another thing that's kind of hard about it is that if you don't pick up a life path that teaches you how to read, you don't know how to read. If you don't pick up a life path that teaches you how to cook, you don't know how to cook. So there's that's a whole lot of it. It's, it's like it goes into a lot of depth, man, um, which is actually part of the reason why I'm probably never going to be able to play it with anybody. It's not really suitable for a one shot because it relies on you know, you getting together with your friends and making the characters together, determining what you want the focus of the story to be, uh, what the limitations of the world are, uh, what the big inciting event is for everything. 
it um, kind of also goes along with if your character doesn't struggle, then they're not going to learn and they're not going to gain experience. So you can try all the things that you don't know how to do. There's always like, you know, uh, sort of a defaulting method. And if you if it works out well for you, you might even learn a thing or two about what you're trying to do. But um, it's just really there's not a lot of balance to it. You you can have a. There's a lot of, uh, I'd call it like racial disparity. There's a lot of things that dwarves and elves and things other than humans do better than humans. I thought that you had to make the setting yourself. Yeah, but there's still rules tied to uh, like the different races. So you could just say, hey, we're going to do like an all human or humans only setting. Nah, fuck um, that. Dwarf Fortress, motherfucker. All right. Yeah, then you could have an entire like Dwarf Fortress game. Slaves that's, that's to totally Arm possible. God of Blood Part 2. That actually makes a lot of sense with the everything you have is in your life path. If you don't learn to read, you don't know how to read. That makes perfect sense for Dwarf Fortress. Yeah. But uh, like I said, it's not something you can just pick up and play. And because it's not suitable for a one shot, I'll probably never be able to convince my friends to give it a chance. How long is a campaign of this game? Um, so like I've never played in one, so I couldn't, I couldn't tell you from personal experience, but, uh, goes on for years is what I've seen based on a couple of reviews online. So it does require, uh, some really, really focused players who are dedicated to the game. Damn. Yeah. But if they're playing for years, it's not just focused. They must really enjoy it. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, there are a couple of good actual plays and that's like the only exposure that I have of them. Okay. I guess I see what. I mean, obviously, without having played it myself or read it, I'm just going on what you told me. But I find it trying to abstract down to like you can't cook if you haven't taken a life path. Like, yeah, that sounds I mean, like the thing I hate most in game skill yeah, systems. Like, I can teach someone to cook. At like I think this sounds. You know, this sounds like this minutes. sounds like Caleb Stokes trying to tell Ross Payton why um, you can't hold a door shut if you don't have the door holding shut skill. There's but rules like, for learning. Wizardry makes sense, but like I don't know some of the basics. I think that um, in the episode, that. the episode we had with Chris Gunning, he talked about life path systems, um, how they're appealing to some people and how they're not appealing to others. You can create exactly what you want to create, but you have to be careful not to spend too much time in the life path system. Otherwise, you know, you'll come out with like the most boring character to play because nothing's challenging for you at all. So the thing about life path systems is that uh, if they're not, if they don't, flow well you can end up with characters that are not good like you can you can have a guy who has like 20 percent in 80 skills and is just not useful or fun to play because he's there's not the 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 uh the choices made by the system or not they may have been logical for the characters you know path through life life path but they don't add up to someone who can actually function in the game world Ah, but you see, that's where Burning Wheel is a little bit different than uh, other RPGs because uh, failure is tied to learning in this. So, like I said, you can create a guy who has, you know, 80% in all the skills, but they're not going to be very fun to play, and you're not going to gain his experience as fast as uh, the players who are lower, lower tier. And when you're creating the things, the person who's running the game does have the ability to say, all right, well, we're going to do life paths and we're going to cut it off after, I don't know, 30 years or so, or, you know, X number of life paths. So you can have, you know, someone who took three life paths and they're like 36, or you can have someone who took eight life paths and they're 24, but they only took, you know, uh, the ones that require just a very um, small amount of time spent in them. So 
essentially sounds like something I I'm all right, I'm I'm gonna say I invented it. I don't know where I came up with it, and I'm sure it's parallel development, but I invented it for the Star Wars uh, uh system, Fantasy Flight Star Wars system. Because the problem with that game is even if you're not a mid-maxer, you really need to spend all your starting points on on uh, stats like strength, dex, etc. Because um, it's really hard to raise those later, and if you don't, you really make a weaker character. So a, a starting character is really boring because they have almost no skills and they really have no talents. Right. So they have no fun ways to like reduce risk or take or like hedge their bets or make cool interactions. So they're really boring. And playing a boring character sucks. Like I, every time somebody says let's play D and D, if we're not going to start a third level, I. Like you've got to pay me to show up because one's first, second level DD characters are trash and they're not fun to play. You don't have any skills yet. Anyway, so what I did is like, someone would make a character. Let's say Jake makes a, uh, a character who's a pilot. All right, Derek, well, you're a pilot. All right, so uh, you're you're in flight school. We'll have a little, a little quick role play session, but you're in flight school and uh, you, you got this kind of rival you're going with and you notice that he's uh, he's using like a like a legal uh, like hacking software to make his make his fighter better so he's he's becoming going getting better in class like you know what do you do i'm gonna uh, snitch on that motherfucker because what if that malfunctions when he when he needs it the most and he doesn't have the skill to back it up yeah right so all right so you do that all right cool so then we, we, we do a quick couple back and forths and i'd give you like a say here i take 30 xp and then i might what i like to do is give like a unique thing so for that i might be like i might be like integrity like the first like at one at one time in a game session if you fail um uh if you fail a check, like to if someone tries to deceive you and you fail to detect it, you can reroll that once because you're just like you're a decent human being or whatever. Like you can come up with a cool thing. So at the end of this, we do maybe two or three of these little vignettes, and it flushes out your one. It flushes out your backstory. Maybe it lets you meet the other characters. So that's out of the way. You know, you don't have that awkward tavern scene where you show up and meet your friends, and then your character is actually fun to play. So I guess I mean. I just kind of shit on life paths. Let's say they were stupid, but I almost do the same thing in Star Wars. It's not a bad system, and it's codified really well here. Um, everything has things that it leads to, and you can make choices. I feel like, I, I know what you're saying, but I feel like everything has things that can you that they lead to, and you can make choices. Describes a very large percentage, very large percentage of uh, role playing games. Like you can even uh, take the same life path over and over again to be good at things. I'm an even better cook. Well, how are you going to be going to cook if you can't read the friggin' recipe? <laughs> or if you, I guess you could just learn the things. But um, you, you know what's fucked up so about it's in pictograms. Most of most cooking throughout history is that most cooking throughout history was done by people who had no way to measure time aside from like looking at the sun and asking other people, and they had no way to like measure things numerically because they were illiterate. I mean, maybe they weren't innumerable; because... maybe they could count. I mean, spoiler alert: most cooking is really has a really wide wide margin for error, and most of it is just by feel, anyway. Yeah, but here's the thing, Kevin. Imagine being the first caveman in trying to figure out whether rocks are edible, and you, you know, you're trying to figure <laughs> out. I don't think that ever happened. How long Grug should put the mammoth over the fire until it stops making people sick? Well, <laughs> then yeah, but here's the thing: Grug have no concept of language. Doesn't matter. You can know when when other Grug is vomiting all the time and shitting his brains out when he eats. Well, here's Grug, the question. Here's the question. Grug are, extremely elegant, eloquent. Look, 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 no Chomsky, is Chomsky right that because they idiots. had no word for it, they couldn't conceptualize it? Uh, cavemen weren't stupid. They just were different than us. I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm I just will not saying have that you caveman shaming on this podcast. Here's the thing: if they were so smart, why aren't there any of them left? 
<laughs> there, there are. Just look at the Republican Party. Hey, so, oh, so, so, so it's wrong <laughs> to insult cavemen until suddenly they vote somehow that Kevin doesn't like, and then it's fine. Like somehow you seize your chance and you take it, right? Kevin, you are the the biggest cop out of everyone here. <laughs> Just because they're different, they gotta go. Poor cavemen. All right. Um, so another thing about Burning Wheel is that let's move on. Yeah. No. No. Hold on. The thing about D&D when you level up is that uh, most of the time when your character levels up, you get options to do violence more gooder, right? So it kind of lends into the it's whole... system of murder-based experience. Yeah, it, it is. It, it leads into murder hoboism. So uh, Burning Wheel shies away from that by giving characters things other than hammers when they level up. It's entirely possible to have an entire... Uh, an entire campaign without ever once uh, having a violent action take place. Ironically, I hate murder-based experience, but might find that campaign boring. I mean, you could have, you know, a political intrigue game. You could have a, uh, a spy game. You could have, you know, any number of things where there's propensity for violence, but you don't have to go that way because that's not what your character believes in. I tried an intrigue game. It was called Pendragon, and I hated it. That's a shame because that's probably one of the other ones that I would put on this list as a game that I'd like to play, but I probably never will. I can just tell you about my, my one bad experience, which has soured me forever, and you can just live vicariously through that. How about that? Yes, I'll take uh, one heavily biased opinion and apply it to a whole system no, no, of no, no, Look, it's not biased, it, but it is simply one data point, I will admit. But it's not biased. It's factual. It happened. All right, let's hear it, I guess. Oh, we don't have time to get into it in this episode. On... On games, we, we'll do the episode on games we played once and we'll never go back to. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Anyways, I think that's about all I can strangle out of talking about Burning Wheel. Um, Melon, I think you're next. What did you want to talk about? What's a game that you would like to play but we will probably never get the chance to? All right, I'm going to go, uh, because I, I don't know how much time we're going to have. It seems like we're, seems like we're, we're going pretty in-depth on these. I'm going to go straight to the last one that I wrote down on document. The game that I'll probably never play or run is a game called Underground. It's a game from, I think, 1993, and it is based on a comic book called Martial Law, but it's very loosely based on that. It just has a few um, kind of aesthetic similarities. Essentially, the plot of Underground is that uh, the United States manufactured a bunch of uh, super soldiers for a war in South America, and now the war is over and all the super soldiers are coming home, and they are uh, ending up as crazy homeless drug addicts or vigilantes or terrorists because uh, having superpowers makes you insane in this world. And so you play as one of these guys trying to so Delta Green become at normal society and you keep getting involved in all of this bullshit. And the game has a really cool mechanic for character generation which is that you have a character creation budget and i mean it's frustrating because it's one of those games where you have like a universal currency that then translates into like at different exchange rates into other things like you know you can buy this many points or whatever stat with this much of the universal thing but what i like about the character creation budget is that the more you spend on superpowers for your guy the crazier your character is because of all of this shit that has to be like reintegrated because in the game world, there's this whole subplot about how they train all the superheroes in order to um, make them not lash out violently against their handlers. They train them in a virtual reality that they convince them is the real world and then dump them on the battlefield and they try to make the transition as seamless as possible. So they think they're still in the virtual reality. 
and there's a whole bunch of other stuff about the the, the game world, etc. But the more you spend on beefing up your character, the less money you have for um, the crazier they are, and the less money you have left over for reintegration, which is um, fixing medical problems, uh, treating mental disorders. So this this came out when did what did you say ninety three? Yes. So it's along lines of a lot of popular like Vietnam metaphor. That's media. probably what it was about. Um, and but it, but like I said, it's based very heavily on a on a, a comic book series that had a similar theme of martial law. Was it was a comic that that followed the it basically chronicled the adventures of a judge a judge dread type character whose job it was to hunt down and retire all the superheroes that were fucking up the streets because they had gone um, insane in the the sweltering jungles at the waste of the world, and that was the inspiration for this but yeah it was very it was it's very obviously a, a riff on um uh, people's experience coming back from vietnam the reason i will never play this game is that it is based on a system called let me see if i get this right the mayfair games exponential system or mayfair exponential game system and you can already tell what problem we're going to have based on that name the word exponential because this is a system that uses logarithms in order to calculate anything in this game system, you use a sliding rule because everything is an exponential increase from the previous thing. So if your strength if your strength uh, goes up, you don't get one more unit of strength. You get the log of that. You get it, you get it, you get your strength multiplied. So it means that calculating basic shit like how much can my guy lift is now like break out the TI eighty four boys. So. You said it's about reintegration uh, after they come back. They're super soldiers and they come back from a war. What sort of like scenarios or what sort of like campaigns or games? It's would basically you play? Shadowrun. You are uh, you are a criminal or a rebel or you otherwise live on the edge of the world, and every attempt that you make to join normal society has been rebuffed. So now you're going to be a tabletop RPG character. And the other thing that was great about it was the art. And I'll try to find. Um, some examples because it's like it's like uh, people make fun of like Rob Lightfelt for being bad at comics, but this is like the good side of that. Hang on, let's find a good illustration. And like the the settings, the settings super cool. They have like a lot of details. Uh, anyone who likes Transmetropolitan will probably find the setting of this comic very familiar because it's one of those very deliberate attempts to depict a cyberpunk future that is grotesque through its embrace of absolute excess. Hey, look at that! Robin Laws wrote a supplement for it. I was just about to say, yeah, wow, apparently. And that is the only name I reckon or recognize on the core rules and supplements thing. On, but the yeah, Wikipedia. I think I would I would write this because you guys have said like here's something that I would love to play, but I can't get someone to play it, or here's something that has stuff that I like, but the system is a bit, you know, I could hack into something else. This is something I would write off the system as totally unsalvageable. Yeah, it doesn't and, sound like something you could port into anything else, and, except maybe like one role for Godlike or something for just for the superpowers and all um, that. Um, guess what is also on my list of games I won't play, except that's not one I want to play. <laughs> so that's the segment that we'll do later. Yeah. Uh, ga- games we tried once and never want to play again. Yeah. Um, this game, like I said, I never played it, so maybe the maybe the system actually works perfectly, and I just am a fool. But it's games we'll never play because just looking at it put me off even trying it. Uh, I picked up a copy of it at a used bookstore, and that's how I got it. So, you know, cool presentation, great setting. It's interesting because this is also from the era of games where the um, 
I noticed this also, and I think I think I had a copy of Shadowrun Second Edition that I picked up at that same store, where the trend was rather than build a character from scratch, the default assumption is that you are going to um, pick a template from the book and then kind of lightly modify it. But there wasn't, there weren't like really deep mechanics for you know doing your own class from scratch and modifying it. It was you know it was it was all very kind of loose and like work with the GM on this. That sounds frustrating. That's. The more I play role-playing games, the more I think I'm spoiled by Delta Green and just how fast and efficient character creation is. Oh, yeah. The, the more you play good role-playing games, the more bad ones st- really stand out as just having glaring, glaring flaws. And it's not to say that Delta Green doesn't have flaws. We've pointed out many of them repeatedly. But, I mean, there are some systems that are just trash. Yeah, but I think that's the thing. Like, playing Delta Green for so long, once you play other games, you realize ultimately how tight delta green is and that none of these things are like crucial flaws that bring the whole thing down the main other the other problem i saw with it when i was reading it is that um it did not have uh the the main the main problem with with a system where you trade off with um between like i can you know play this game and i get i get um more character creation resources in exchange for uh you know the the more reintegration problems is that it's the same problem as any other system where you can buy um, drawbacks to give yourself more points at character creation, which is that I've either got a stack of disorders that make my character basically unplayable and are so disruptive that like I can't participate in the game, or I've got a stack of stuff that never comes up because either I don't remember it, the GM doesn't remember it, or it's irrelevant. Like so, I'm a sl- slow reader, I'll just never read anything, and it's fine. <laughs> There was also some of the guys from the sister system mastery podcast also made the point that some of those disadvantages are actually good for your character. Like things like you have an enemy that just means your character and their subplot is now kind of leading the game because everything has to accommodate this stupid thing you've got on your character sheet. It's how I design. Uh, I got a game of Pathfinder I got into recently. I'm uh, playing an Oracle. And uh, step one of making an oracle is choose the things that hurt you the least. I'm trying to think of other interesting things to say about this game, but yeah, it just feels like a um, it's 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 an interesting setting. But I have not ever seen a superhero system that I would actually like to like the system part. I've seen lots where I love the setting, but none where I like the system. I was looking at uh, the Wikipedia page, and the the setting information all seems really. Uh, Seems really, I, I don't know whether I'd call it well-developed or not, but it seems like some pretty good uh, biting commentary. Uh, it has a lot of personality. It has a lot of yeah, flavor. Yeah, for sure. And it, like I said, it's very, um, I don't know if there's a, I think I think this this one might actually uh, predate Transmetropolitan. So that influence there, I was, I was, I may have had cause and effect reverse there because the specific one that I think of, which I'm actually, I'm looking at the something awful fatal and threat and friends thread for it. If you guys aren't familiar, fatal and friends is a something awful thread where they review traditional games and just post images and, and comment on them. And it can range from everything from really shitty, uh, obscure games to hidden gems to, um, read throughs of like classic stuff that is like reviewed with a more critical modern eye. And, it's a cool source of information about these, uh, like kind of crowdsource information about these old old indie games. But the one I'm thinking of specifically is there's a a, a little sidebar on cannibalism and why clone clone meat is now uh, 
Oh no, it's not clone wow. me. Sorry, it's it's just um, it's like organ donation, but instead they just fucking kill you and eat you. Yeah. See that. <laughs> oh, okay, says, that's much better. Instead of sending an organ organ donor card, people send a card which gives the next of kin a token fee and consents to having the deceased body processed into food when they die. So I guess that's good if you're a uh, you know uh, a South American uh, superhero war vet, you can at least continue to provide for your family <laughs> one more time. Jesus. All right, that's um, how I feel about Underground. Kevin, what's your topic of choice? Uh, probably, I think it sounds like we're only going to get through one of these, right? Yeah, I think so. So my one is more of a genre because there's a couple games that fall into it, but it's like Kids on Bikes or Tales from the Loop. Uh, I've seen them described as like Stranger Things RPGs, um, although that's probably, I think some of them were around before that. So maybe that's a misnomer. Stranger Things was definitely like a big boost to those kinds of games. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I love the idea of, you know, you're, you're playing as a character in a Spielberg movie. You're playing kids, you know, fighting a monster or, or fighting the government or whatever. And it's a, it's a great kind of throwback to, to that nostalgia of your life. Um, I mean, and I think the systems look good. Tales from the Loop, the art is amazing. The system looks fun. I just don't. Have anybody who wanted to play it with me, and I'm not going to run it because I don't need to run it for, and no one I know wants to run it for me. So it's just, it's just not going to happen. Well, let me stop you right I, there, Chief, because uh, I will run it for you at some point in time because it's, I went all in on the Kickstarter and got all of the stuff. So I'm not about to let that shit go away. So clear your schedule off. We're going to play this shit sometime. I mean, I, I also have both a- been telling me about it comes phase for well over a year, so. I also have a PDF copy of Tales from the Loop, so I would be down to play that sometime. It's uh, analog enough to Delta Green that it piqued my interest, you know? Uh, That's sort of uh, where the unnatural exists among us type thing. I think that game is all art and no anything else good. I think there's there's probably a fair argument to be made that uh, just the layout and the presentation and Simon Stallenberg's artwork is so good that you're going to buy it whether or not you care about the game inside. I think someone should have commissioned him to do art for a game that was already good instead of trying to build a game around it. I think I, Just like how Guy Davis that, used to do RPG art and it was awesome. I think a, a game of that is, is going to be good because you're going to have somebody who has a cool story they want to tell and, and can run it. Uh, and you could run the damn thing in Gerbs and probably still kick ass. So it's probably less about the system and more about the kind of mouthfeel of that. Tell, of tell that me how the game. gameplay in this system works, because I, I, I've only heard that it's disappointing, but I've not heard the specifics, so I might just be wrong. It's D6-based. Um, it's very similar. Remember we played Blades in the Dark that one time? So you have your stat, and then you have the skill, and you total up the stat and the skill. and you want to play. You roll that number of dice, and you only need one six for it to be a success. And if you have extra sixes, then you have extra successes, and it's like a critical. You can save the critical for later. Um, unlike Blades in the Dark, there's not a whole lot of like fictional positioning to be had. Fictional position, fictional position lawyering to be had. Yeah, um, it, it lacks nuance. I think is what a bunch of people say about it. Yeah. It's the same basic dice mechanic, I guess, but without a lot of the nuance and a lot of the kind of, I don't know if strategizing is the right word, but using the narrative to kind of tilt the odds in your favor. It's just a straight die roll. Uh, There are a couple of, like, to make it a challenge, you have to have two two sixes instead of one, but... Uh, there's a lot of mechanics for your fellow kids helping you out, and you get more 
uh, dice to throw into the mix. So it encourages a lot of teamwork. Um, and you also get, go ahead. I was going to say, I think you also get like a special like piece of equipment that's really important to you, and like uh, you can yeah. tap one of the grown-ups in your life who's really important to you to get a bonus once in a while too. Yeah, um, there's not really like health or hit points, but you do gain like status conditions, like upset, angry, uh, things like that. And it's supposed to inform your role playing, but you don't necessarily have to. Uh, but it's better if you do lean into it. And then, like the like Tom said, there's the anchor who is your uh, the adult you can turn to, and when you go spend time with them, it takes away all your negative status conditions. Right. So you kind of want to. Uh soldier it out for most of the game as you accrue more statuses and then towards the end you go and talk to them and you get them all wiped out and then you're fresh for whatever final confrontation there is yeah there's a sort of a risk versus reward uh to that it's a very narrative heavy game um it, it relies a lot on you know character creation being done together uh everybody being connected within the group one of the interesting things about Tales from the Loop is that it also has an option for sort of like sandboxy mystery solving gameplay. Yeah, because uh, it comes with some settings baked right in and you can play in what is it, Boulder City, Colorado? Or is it Nevada? I don't remember. Yeah, it's it's Colorado. Around the Hoover Dam. And then That's there's the... the Loop, which is in Sweden. I almost feel like they put the Colorado setting in there just so they could sell copies in America. I think so. Yeah, I think it was because Simon Stallenberg is Swedish and that's where like the story and his artwork all takes place and the developers are Swedish too. So that's where they wanted to set it. But also people might be turned off by having to play in rural Sweden. So here's America for you. Sorry, we kind of took over your answer here, Kevin. Did you want to talk more about it? I mean, look, I've never read it. I've never played it. I've never run it. I like the milieu and the, and the idea, so it's good. It, I am going to sidetrack and talk a little bit about something I wrote down is um, something I used to play along this line, but will probably never play again, is like growing up when you had nothing to do, like some of the Dungeons & Dragons games that I played in or ran uh, were like kind of one of a kind. Like you'd spend all day, you'd spend like 12 hours playing, and you'd spend the rest of the day and all night talking about your plans, how you're going to, strategize and buy things and build a castle and build a cool ship and like that is just like that's like the kind of interesting fun like engagement you can kind of only get as a kid like someone who would be a character and tells from the loop but like is nowadays there's too much shit going on for me to get that into something or to get you know that excited about uh so i feel like that's just like a game i'll never ever be able to go back to it's like to me it's like, it's like that pure Dungeons and Dragons are real Dungeons and Dragons. So you're saying you want to play like old school D and D? Yeah, but like in an old school way. Like, I want that old school feel, and I just I don't, I don't, don't think it's capturable you... with modern. Why don't you technology. just play an OSR? So what you're saying is that you beat on like a boat against the current, born ceaselessly back into the past. You long for the day when the black stars rise above Dim Carcosa, and you are swept back into a memory that will never die of a better time. All you want to do I, is get I back guess. there. Because this doesn't sound like a fantasy about a specific game. This just sounds like a fantasy about uh, a time in your life. That Well, I mean, but it, it was done in the Dragons was the game. I mean, that, oh, Of course. Yeah. Yeah, you should check out OSRs, man. Well, I, I don't it's think, though, that I'll fix it. It's not about the... Yeah, exactly. His There's problem no is that back. he is a grizzled boomer who has let all the joy seep out of his life, which is the fate that awaits is us it, all. And... 
no matter what I roll, I can't feel anymore. So So is it just about like the innocence and the feeling of discovering something new for the first time? Maybe. So I I I remember spending like all like just days and like school days talking about like uh, my friends and I in a campaign we had we wished ourselves a castle because that's the kind of stupid shit you do when you're like 12. So yeah, we but you don't have to castle, apologize for right? it. We've all had this experience. I'm, I'm not. I'm clearly not apologizing for it. Um, uh, and we so we spent like hours and hours and hours figuring how we're gonna like deck it out making up stats for all like the guardsmen and all these traps and all this cool shit and like you just we get so just so into it because that was like that was like all encompassing in our lives we had nothing else to do with our lives uh and now that like i'm an adult i have other shit to do in my life and i can still get into a game and i can still enjoy a game but you just can't get like that kind of pure feeling i guess is uh is what i'm trying to say maybe it's just me like i guess i don't have the luxury to only care about D anymore and i miss that nice all you want to do is get back there. Um, I think that since Kevin did two fast ones, I can tack another one onto my. Uh, I can tack another one onto my um, underground one. Another superhero RPG with a cool concept and rules that I don't like is called Base Raiders. Base Raiders is a game by the RPPR gang. I think it's by Ross Payton, and it um, is about. Isn't, are they a techno band? Uh, you're thinking of Base Raiders. No, hang on, I'll find it. Based Raiders and their um, their evil counterpart, the Cringe Raiders. Base Raiders is a, a game about a future where um, the world is infested with superheroes, supervillains, aliens, robots, etc. But one day all the superheroes disappear and you play as uh, basically a, a scavenger who goes into the, le- to the abandoned fortresses left behind by the superheroes to steal all their cool shit. And you can go in there and, you know, take drink a potion or get it, you know, get hit by an experimental ray and start mutating and gaining superpowers and becoming a monster. And it's it's a typical it's like a, a you know, a, a kind of dungeon crawling, but dungeon crawling in uh, this kind of alternate setting. And the reason that I will probably never play it is that the rules are too complicated. It starts with fate, which is a very kind of basic system, very simple and just adds subsystems on until the game suffocates. Um, it is a, the, re- the reason why it's like this is something that I definitely sympathize with, which is that with superhero systems, they generally fall into one of two pathologies. Either the game, is, the powers are very easy to create, but then it's so generic that it might as well not even matter what your narrative justification for why you're, what you're doing is like you know if the fire guy and the ice guy do the same thing at the end of the day in, in the game system who cares what differences are and then the other approach is to be very detailed and then make it too complicated and they definitely aired on that side with this one i may be wrong it might not be ross it might be one of the other ones anyway no it's it's ross with some extra material written by caleb stokes nice i think i think ross has said this is based on specifically i believe it's called strange fate which is a version that was written for the Kerberos Club. Basically just a version of Fate specifically written for like weird heroes and superheroes. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I know it's more complicated than your standard Fate version, but I, I mean, believe... I, don't, I don't even really like Fate anyways, to be honest. So it's Fate, not... Fate is really abstract, right? That's the one where you declare something about your character and it's always true, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is this is like... The reverse of my issues with fate, though, is a thing. It moves from an abstract system to something that's got a lot of crunch, or what? It's very so. You need a flowchart to make a character. Um, wow. It has it has one of the same problems I have with with um, 
uh, when I was talking earlier about like different exchange rates and stuff, where it's one of those games that gives you a lot of things that overlap but are subtly different. Just like how um, I was complaining about how in in uh, Fall of Delta Green, the way that you handle bureaucracy, it's like, well, you've got networks, you've got contacts, you've got bonds, you've got your agency score, you've got your bureaucracy skill. A lot of systems that work differently but perform the same function in the game universe. And that was that's always kind of been my problem with Fate is that you've got aspects, stunts, and skills, all three of which kind of do the same thing, only um, they're like invoked in different ways. And, and they say stunts let you break the rules, but if it tells you that you can break the rule, then you're not breaking the rule. Uh, that was the feeling I remember getting when I was when I was reading Base Raiders, is that it was difficult for me to keep track of if I want to do X, I should do I should do Y during character creation. It was difficult for me to translate the vision to reality because I wasn't sure where where my points would be best invested. But we never got to play the game, so this is why it's a game I've never played because it fell apart because I was the only person who finished character creation. Kevin, I wonder if you could backhack this and like the Atomic Robo RPG or a more recent version of Fate Core because Atomic Robo adds mega stunts which are basically basically stunts that let you do more powerful stuff like you're absolutely as strong absolutely stronger is what they call it for someone with superhuman strength or you can be completely immune to different damage sources it's an interesting possibility I think the difficulty that you'd have is that there's a lot of meta stuff like you know here's Here's how you go from just a um, kind of like a, a a vagrant breaking into breaking into an abandoned building to almost like domain level play in old school D and D, where it's not just um, dungeon crawling anymore. It's like here's how I actually kind of set up my own uh, you know hideout and so on, and start getting so more involved in the game world at large. So you're creating your own base for other people to raid. I guess that is the cycle, isn't it? It does sound like the cycle. Eventually, you just have so much weird shit stockpiled that other people come by and try to steal it from you. You become the dungeon. What's that? There's that, uh, there's a, like a green text thread or something about a peasant who, uh, who has something nice and some adventurers come around to their house and he kills the adventurers and he takes all the adventurers' magic stuff and he makes traps. Because all these these damn adventurers keep coming to my house trying to take my stuff, and he starts tacking on like more ra- more elaborate traps and more uh, you know uh, obstacles for them to have to get through. He starts buying pets and different things that work for him. That is uh, the exact plot of a Belgian comic called Dungeon about a guy who um is who who he lives in a doom fortress and he essentially just makes money off of all the adventurers coming to steal his shit. And he uses he uses the money to just pay his employees' wages to keep the building running. And he started it as a hobby, but now he's like a grizzled boomer who um, is more concerned about with spreadsheets and having fun. And everyone else has to like show him how to have a good time and shit. That's also one of my probably my favorite Euro comic. I need to read this. You've mentioned this a couple times before. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot about it that's weird, kind of weird and off-putting, especially some of the side stories that they get into. Anyway, uh, that's that's it for me on base raiders. So. If anyone else wants to come back with a second bite of the apple, they can. So, uh, Will, you were going to, I mean, I think we already introduced this concept. We're talking about games that we like the look of, but will probably never end up running or playing. Um, we've discussed several games already. We discussed uh, Raiders of Relia, Burning Wheel, Tales Base. from the Loop and Things from the Flood. 
Tales from the Loop, Things from the Flood, Base Raiders, and Underground. And Kevin waxed nostalgic for a little while about uh, discovering D and D for like the first time. Got it. No, we we got exactly what you were talking about, but we told you that that's not a game that you will never play again. That is a nostalgia for a time in your life, not a specific product. Why not both? You can try and like re-explain it if you think it'll help. No, it's absolutely nostalgia, but I mean, it was it, it was more about the game, not the time. It was a little bit about the time. Uh, Will, do you have a game that you like, but you will never play or run? Uh, yeah, Eclipse Phase. Uh, actually, no, not Eclipse Phase, because I, I was thinking about it, and I was, and I was thinking, no, I, I actually might run that again. I mean, we both have actually played and run that, yes. so it's not accurate, but what, what do you have count. for us? Uh, have you guys heard of Traveler? Yes. Yeah. yeah. What is Traveler for those of the listeners who have not heard of it? Traveler is a... 2d6 based system uh sci-fi adventure uh shenanigans in space you you have a ship you travel around hence the name um the thematically itch it borrows a lot from eras like the age of sail that's kind of the feel that's that's sort of the feel of the game which i really like tall ships in space it's a great great theme uh i love i love everything about this game uh but i lack familiarity with the deep tapestry of lore of the setting and there's there's a lot such that i don't think i would ever really be comfortable running it because i'd have to make shit up and i don't know if it would fit like i don't really have a good handle on on the setting itself you know and i don't know anybody who is more comfortable than i am with that so i probably will never get to play it it's like largely based on exploration right it might be one of those games where yeah like, uh it's so... a game that it's also one one of the other things that I've because I, I I almost got to play it once. Um, one of the other things about Traveler is it has very detailed rules for things that you look at and go, okay, that's cool. Why do I need detailed rules for that? Like like in the game that I almost got to play, I well we uh, constructed a spreadsheet to track fuel consumption, and I thought that was fun, but that's that's because I'm weird. But I mean, I, at the same time, that's why why would you need to do that there's like this all this uh you know how much mass your ship is and that and then so that determines how big of a hyperdrive you can have and that how much fuel you need to get but you can get you can you can refine your own fuel if you have the equipment and just scoop water from an ocean but if you don't want to do that or can't afford to do that you can get refined fuel for like what whoa whoa whoa, whoa, that whoa. A, what's that what's that meme game or there's a meme about it the uh the World and then War different One. Classes of have different uh, docking fees, and oh my god! The World War One game where, or World War Two, where the you track like water consumption. Battle for North troops. Africa. Yeah, the, yeah, the, 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 main, the point. Yeah, uh, Italians yeah. use more water than others. To yeah, they use one pasta. extra point of water because the dry, their food rations were pasta. Yeah, it's, it's not quite that level of depth. it's not quite that level of autism, but it's it's. It's higher it than sounds like games. the friggin' ship creation rules in Mothership, which were the worst part of that game. Uh, didn't actually see the ship creation rules, but uh, the they were not. Did... The reason you didn't see, the reason you didn't see them is that I built an elaborate spreadsheet that did all the calculations for you. Huh. And thankfully, we weren't really subjected to that. So thanks for that. Traveler does have a system for building uh, starships and like rules and stuff, but it's also been around long enough that there are pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of free PDFs released by both players and also the devs uh, of just like spaceships in different configurations. Will, tell me about a little bit about the traveler system because you're telling us about the like context of it, but what? how does he play the game? 
Uh, well, the basic mechanic is you roll 2d6 and you add your skill rating. And then you're trying to get so higher is better. That's basically it. Um, it's, it's, that's fair. That's probably the simplest part of the game. Um, oh, um, if I recall correct, it's been a while since I looked at the rules, but uh, you, there, all, there isn't like a hit point analog. When you take damage, you assign it to your physical attributes, which is kind of kind of neat because in you know like a fight you know as you take more damage your ability your combat effectiveness will sort of drop off which is an interesting mechanical element um just i I think it's interesting well so usually the way the way that ends up working usually is that um in games where people take damage that affects their stats like where you get you know wound points or whatever whether it reduces your stats what it usually means in those cases is that the first guy to shoot usually wins because you can immediately cripple the opponent and that's you know people people see that as a downside on the other hand in games where they don't have wound systems typically the optimal strategy is for everyone to attack the same person and just pile on the weakest guy because he's always going to be maximum strength until the moment that he dies yeah exactly so you're kind of in a stuck between two not great options, and so you have to design. You know, how can I design a system that'll um, give people an incentive to actually shoot at the biggest threat rather than just try to concentrate damage, while also just not making the guy with the biggest decks the automatic victor? Yeah, it means that every injury is is meaningful in some way. It, it hinders. It makes it more difficult to accomplish your goals in some way. So naturally, as a player, you'll try to find ways to avoid or minimize injury which is sort of a soft incentive against going in guns blazing every time the most people know about traveler because they know of a meme where you can die during character creation classic traveler was a lot worse for this mongoose traveler is a little more forgiving um so uh, for, for, for the listeners mongoose traveler is a traveler version released by a company called mongoose yeah, Mongoose acquired the rights several years oh, back. Uh, prior to that, mongoose traveling through space. Right, you have prior, to find fucking snakes to eat. Prior to that, I don't recall who published the original version. I think there was two editions originally. Uh, I'm not sure about that. The way character generation works in Traveler is uh, you you start you, you you start with the attributes. You figure out your home planet. You just make one up and pick like a bunch of um, like. You can decide, oh, I want to be from like a, a farming planet. I want to be from a, from a high-tech industrial world. I want to be from like a, a mining asteroid colony. There's there's a whole bunch of little traits for, for planets. And what the character creation chapter just says is, well, just pick two of these and make sure they don't contradict each other. And that's that you have just created your home planet. Or you can go through the deep, the, the, the rich tapestry of lore and find one in the star catalogs. But who, who the fuck wants to do that? Then you start going through your, your career paths. And so... Your career gives you a basic package of skills, and then you make some roles, and then some additional things happen. Like you might get an extra skill, you might get a promotion, you might get some some nifty equipment, you might get like shares and ownership of a starship, which is like the best one. And then you advance your character's age by four years, and then you make another role. And that role determines if you get promoted, uh, get fired, get a different job, or you can just voluntarily go. No, that's that's fine. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a space adventurer now. Uh, and if you, how it worked orig- in original Traveler was, you, every time you make that, it's called a survival roll, and it's possible to become injured as a result of the survival roll. So you'd, you'd reduce some of your attributes. You'd uh, you'd have to pay for like cybernetic prosthetics or something. If you get old enough, you have to start taking anti-aging drugs. Uh, and it is also possible that the result of the survival roll is that your character dies during character creation. That gets oh. that gets more likely as you go. Like it's basically impossible to do that on the, the first time, just because the num the numbers just don't add up that way. 
But as you take progressively more career terms, getting more stuff, better skills, more gear, more experience, the chance that your character, you don't, don't get to play that character increases. So there's sort of a, it's kind of a gambling mechanic, really. Um, I, guess somebody, I guess if somebody wanted to game it, they could just keep doing that until they got through yeah, some career terms. If there's no consequences to the character dying, then you can just do it until you succeed. So what Mongoose Traveler does is it essentially just removes the death option, and instead it's just, you can only get injured. That makes more sense from a perspective Although of running starts could, coming. Eventually you could accumulate enough injuries that your character would just die because they have no more physical attributes left. But like you'd have to really game it for that. And at that point, I would hope that the storyteller would look at your character sheet and go, no. So just to correct the record, there were seven different publishers for Traveler over 11 wow, editions. 11. Holy shit. Um, the original was Game Designer's Workshop. But what I really, what I recall starkly about these is my cousin owned Tra- Traveler, the books. Um, and the art style on the fr- original set was gorgeous because it was all black which is the word traveler in red and then into white, like what, what it was like starships. Yeah. It was, you know, it was depending handbook, on the book, it was a different color. Like the core book was red. The, the, like the naval book was green. It was, it was a really slick design, you know, simple. So it really looked simplicity like, is key. Less is more. Yeah. It really looked like a, like a starship manual, you know, like that you'd have on a shelf. That was pretty cool. Uh, I, I would probably play a traveler. I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for any kind of like hard sci-fi or a little less hard sci-fi game. It's just, I mean, I would, I'm only going to play it if somebody sits down in front of me with, with a ready-to-run thing and they run it, and that's just not going to happen in my life. So, nice. so there's Traveler. Great game. I think it's pretty good anyway. I wouldn't know because I've never played it, but I'd like to. I just I probably never will get the chance. It's one of like the earliest uh, RPGs, right? Or one of, one of the earlier ones, but it came out it like... Goes all, it goes pretty 77? far back, yeah. 77? 77. Hey, did we talk about Phoenix Command after we let Craig go? Nope. No. I mean, we definitely talked about it after... But I don't remember if it was before or after we let Craig go. No, I, I I told you about a different game that I thought was similar to Phoenix Command. And I can do that again, but first I want you to tell me about Phoenix Command. So Phoenix Command, so another game... Remember that level of autism I was talking about with spreadsheets for docking fees? Yeah, so another nice. game that I uh, w- would like to play, but uh, won't because I don't hate myself, um, is a, call, a game called Phoenix Command. Um, it's a small unit infantry combat game where you can keep detailed track of your characters and their equipment and combat is very detailed and i mean when i say very detailed in your mind dear listener i imagine you're thinking like oh you have to like make sure you've attached the right stock or make sure you track the number of bullets no 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 you need to look well well, yes i mean yes but that's only the service this is a game where i can roll for one guy to shoot and hit another guy and then that bullet based on a complex series of tables um, can like hit him like in the abdomen, ricochet off an organ out of his body, hit the guy behind him, you know, do foot damage, etc. Uh, and it makes a big difference whether I shot from like prone, half prone, laying down, whether I aimed for one breath or two breaths, etc. Uh, it's extremely detailed and very simulationist. You said foot foot damage. It's at one third of a meter damage. If you do enough foot damage, are they defeated? So anyway, what's really nice? Oh my about, god! I just uh, fucking. Oh, he just got it. Oh, yeah, no. Jesus Christ. Oh, Jay. Um. So the my, my main exposure to it was a something awful forums thread involving an almost equally simulationist uh, naval air combat simulator game 
where you can you know, like you might be you're flying your jet around and you can like turn on each different radiate each different radar and tune them properly and then you control a whole swath of things and every missile is tracked and every bullet is tracked and anyway a guy was running like a let's play of that where all the people on the forums could kind of chip in and make decisions for the for the private military corp and somebody went one level deeper like they incepted one level deeper whenever there needed to be like ground combat like say there was going to be a mission over china that the pmc was going to have and they wanted to knock out one of the big radar systems instead of using a plane because it was too dangerous at first they would send in like their ground pmc units and so someone decided that they were going to run that in phoenix command um and i think it immediately devolved into a battle royale a meme contest but for like one session it worked great um so phoenix command is a game that i would love to have someone else do all the simulationist nonsense and just let me dictate what the guys need to do like move through that door and you know throw a flashbang and then you know take a snapshot and let someone else do the tens of hundreds of rolls and cal- calculations and spreadsheet checks etc uh, if you look in the show notes i'll make sure i include uh, an equipment loadout which breaks down it's a ridiculous spreadsheet. Um, so that's the only way I'd ever play Phoenix Command because it's just so grognard or just so crunchy. Like, it's unplayable. Kevin, uh, there's a game that's like that but is an actual game instead of being a meme, and it's called Twilight. Twilight is a... Um, it's what, like, people in the 80s and 90s thought the near future were going to be like. And it's about, like, some science fiction people who emerge from the wasteland of a nuclear war from a secret bunker and have to oh, um, Twilight 2000 right and have to roll firearms yes. until they rebuild humanity that i've actually played how is it um i had a lot of fun there's a setting called cadillacs and dinosaurs for it which is also that sounds fun. way fucking better than the default setting because um, here's the thing default setting grognard realism and bullshit i don't yeah. care about cadillacs and dinosaurs has fucking Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I played the so this, arcade game. This was also published by Game Designers Workshop, so maybe we're sensing a theme here. Um, it it really suffered from it was published in '84, and it just suffered from like like old RPGs. Just I don't know what I don't I don't know what the game designers of old were smoking, but they're just some of the systems are just crap. And obviously, we we iterated on these systems enough nowadays that we have slick, sweet systems that let us do. I disagree. Them. I think there's them. still systems that we're wallowing in that have not been fixed in fucking thirty years. Sure, but that's not mutually exclusive with what I'm saying. Like like ability score modifiers and ability scores, just fucking have one number. Don't have two numbers that do one thing. I remember an awesome Twilight 2000 RPG cover that had like a like a sci-fi Huey landing. Let me see if I can find it. Let's see if I find it. I liked the this game because it seemed like, well, in 84, it seemed like all modern day stuff, even though it's supposed to be like more in the future. So it's all like, you know, Borsop had Cold War era stuff rather than super sci-fi stuff. So I used to read a series of books. I want to say they were called Blade something. Uh, really schlocky, really pulpy, like post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, sci fantasy novels uh, that were just awful, but so fun to read because you could just burn through one in like a couple hours. I believe it's called Book of the New Sun. It's not. The joke is that it has the exact opposite characteristics of the one you just described. Take a drink, yeah. listeners. I don't get it. I will do oh, just boy. that, motherfucker. Yeah, you gotta pour one out. Real talk, yes, do it. We haven't done our fucking Gene Wolfe Memorial episode yet. It's gonna be like a year Isn't every late, episode but... the Gene Wolfe Memorial episode? Right, exactly. Why would I pay for something that happens every day on the hood of my car? Kevin, do you have anything else to say about Phoenix Command for us? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I mean, it was 
it's probably a solid game because somebody uh, so it's a solid game in, in that everything is sensible but it's just that you have to track like bullet trajectory and caliber and how many grains of powder if i, if I remember it. correctly one of the problems with phoenix command is that um the rules are incredibly detailed and it's not like a generic system it's designed for a specific place and time so it's like i want to it's this, this entire system is written for fighting brush fire wars in a very specific time and place in history and if you want to use it for anything else you basically have to rewrite everything because it's a system that has very detailed like you know we're not talking like oh here's a medium pistol we're talking about like no here's a you know a, a bren 10 but you know i put bigger sights on it so that i could see at night better but that you know increases the likelihood that it'll get caught in the holster when i draw it so i have to adjust this modifier but meanwhile um the recoil from the increased size of this round means that my follow-up shots will be less. You have to do that for everything. So you can't just modify the system yeah, for something exactly. else. So I'm going to, I'm going to segue myself into the other game I wanted to talk about. Cause it's the perfect, you made a perfect segue there. Um, so Venus command is the kind of game that like, if, so, if you knew someone who was an expert in Venus command and they could handle all of the computing kind of on their own and they knew it all, it'd probably be pretty fun to play. But if like, if we all sat down to play it, we would spend so much time, all right, I think I want to walk through the door. All right, shit. Uh, well, you start looking up the walking mechanics. Double check those. Get the chart out. Make uh, sure Jake, you, you look through the left, door. Left leg versus right. Going leg. through a door mechanics in this book. Like so, but if you, someone just knew it all, and because they, they just had played it a lot, it would be a lot faster, right? So uh, that's rolls right into the other game that I would love to play, but and I have played it, but I will probably never play a game with your Shadow Run because the system requires a similar level of kind of mastery of someone who just has played a bunch of it to know what's going on. Is this, you really is this true of all editions or I don't know. I, I think there's a, new I've one. never seen it. Oh, there's a new that one. That was good. There's one that just came out a couple weeks ago at origins. So what, what I've always told people about Shadowrun, people who want to play it is uh, if you, if you really like the milieu, then just run, run it in GURPS because GURPS is simple to understand. And GURPS does have its own, have its own set of problems, but at least it's runnable for a, uh, for a layman. If you really want to play Shadowrun, you need two people who know the system really well. You need like the handler, the the dungeon master, because they need to, they need to do all of the work on the NPCs and running the things. And then you need a player who knows it really well, who can say stuff like, "Hey, when you're making a character, you know, here's a here's a way to like make sure you include a cybernetic that makes you like you you're making a character who wants to hit things with sticks. So make, give yourself some cybernetics that are better for stick hitting. There's a good chance you'll just never stumble into that if you're new to the system. So it requires you to have like two qualified Shadowrun people and good luck finding two people. Who aren't I've never seen a, a, an edition of Shadowrun that I thought I wanted to play. I've always wanted to, but then every time I, I open the book, it's like just all this. It's one of those. It's one of those character creation systems where where it it asks you to make like a shit ton of decisions that don't make any sense to you yes. because you haven't learned anything about how they work. And it has shifting exchange rates where you use like, okay, do you want to prioritize your meta type? Do you want to prioritize your magic? Do you want to prioritize your just your dick inches, your prostate size, your fingernail growth rate? Which is why I tell people just like if you want to play it, because because I love the milieu and the background and like the idea, just run it in GURPS or another system. I don't that works, I don't GURPS think works. GURPS is better. I think GURPS is the same amount of information overload. I disagree highly. Okay, well maybe GURPS can be my system that I'll never play, but I don't have any desire to. And so I mean, every time I've played Shadowrun, it's it's half the time we get bogged down in mechanics of things, and like again, it just slows the game way down. Then everybody kind of you know sods off um so i just is one of, again one of the games i'll i want to play but probably won't 
It was one of you guys that mentioned that there's almost like double or triple work that's required for a GM because in the middle of a combat, you might also have somebody who's doing a hack, which means you have to do something that takes place in the Matrix the Matrix world. That and was me talking about Eclipse Phase, but it's it's even worse with Shadowrun. And they've tried to fix it in recent editions, is my understanding. The older editions were much, much worse, where the Decker was a, ran this whole minigame behind the scenes, and it was just awful. And they've fixed it now, is, is what I've been told. And yet, I think that it ultimately it really is at least when i when i played eclipse phase the problem has always been you need to add an extra layer of interactivity to the game world to yeah it rarely comes up in combat and the the eclipse phase devs tried to discourage players from attending to hack during combat because all the things have really long task times but players try it anyway because they're used to shadow run right yes i found the book series the 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 one you're talking about the fantasy shit called the end world I will I will include some pictures in the show notes because end covers, world yeah Google end end world one word like end of the world but one word uh, books and just look at some of these covers they're amazing I have another game I would like to talk about sure uh, one that Do I'll it. probably never convince anyone to play with me because I don't think anyone uh, at least among you guys and other people I play games with likes Halo as much as I do. I don't know how you guys feel about Halo. Um, I think it that it is been a lot better. incredibly overrated. Yeah. Okay. Well, I um, what they promised us in the E3 I think that the first, the first game, and maybe the second game, like I thought the story was kind of cool, like the setting, but um, the way the direction they took it is fucking stupid and horrible. And also the first game, like the first half of it was good, but then the moment they introduced the flood, it just went fucking straight in the trash. It fucking boggles my mind that they would spend so much development resources on something that was just not fun. Like they would consciously say, we're going to spend all of our time and money on something that is horrible. Well, they were working on a budget for one. Uh, but here's just, the thing. They needed the a thing. way to like reuse if assets. Have, if you have a budget, don't spend your budget developing resources for things that everyone hates. They wanted a way for you to play through the levels backwards without realizing that's what you were doing, and they. Well, did you were going to have to realize it because you had to do everything twenty fucking times in the fucking library. Oh, is is that where yeah. the "let's go through the entire game again backwards" meme came from? That was all throughout the. It might be. Else. Might be. Definitely kind of that too, but it did that well. The fucking flood were terrifying to nine-year-old Jake, and the memory of the library still haunts me to this day. But anyways. I found Having a badly a, designed level that terror that traumatizes people is not good game design. It's great I mean, game design. Yeah, it is. It's how Resident Evil got popular. Pe- people say people say that like people say that um, you know three four three industries is awful. I think Bungie is not much better. I mean, they gave us Destiny, so anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that Case uh, in point. So I found a fan made D one hundred. Halo RPG called Halo Mythic. It's a part of this. It uses a system called uh, 100 DOS, which is degrees of success. Um, so, like, Delta Screen uses the blackjack system for opposed roles, but in this one, um, it's still, you know, having a high uh, skill rating in something still means you're doing better, but you count the intervals of 10 by which your role succeeded. So, it's better to roll low in this. And then you, you know, like, say I have an 80 in something, Kevin has a 40. Kevin succeeds with a 36, I succeed with a 76, or uh, I succeed with a 5, let's say. I'd have like 7 degrees of success because you could count 10s. Uh, you have 7 10s and he'd only have like 0. So I'd have like a plus 7 modifier on my roll. It sounds complicated uh, when I say it like out loud. but No, it's, 
that's how a lot of games used to work. But uh, before we got blackjack and other stuff, it's uh, and it's not so bad. Just the degrees of success like that. I think it's something I could get used to. But um, the it is created by one guy who goes is online. Like username is Vorkid. I think his real name's Brandon Miller. Um, and you can tell it's just a labor of love. He's gone through and he's created and statted pretty much every race faction. Uh, weapon, vehicle, all that have stats for this this uh, Halo RPG. And I gotta say, I was looking through the combat rules, and uh, there are things that we complain about in Delta Green, or not not that we complain about, but uh, that we we question. You know, why why isn't it like this? Can armor degrade? Um, stuff like that. Uh, you hide behind armor in this Halo Mythic RPG, and the armor gets shot. The armor starts to degrade, so you better think about moving. Uh, different range bands for your weapons mean different uh, things that affect your degrees of success. Uh, you can make more than one melee attack in your turn, so you can, you know, uh, have a viable melee combat character, which makes sense when you think of like elites and the fact that they're, you know, energy swords rushing into battle. Uh, the grappling system's not so bad. There's a lot of different things you can do while you're grappling somebody. Uh, so, like, I mean, Halo is a pretty famous game for being pretty revolutionary in terms of combat at the time. At least that's the way I feel about it. Oh, you're wrong. Well, anyways, uh, yeah, the RPG is pretty good. Year old. I mean, so the game's about combat and the RPG reflects that it's, it's got a pretty focus. And if you're going to play this with friends, you're going to want to play with like like-minded people who have, you know, the same sort of level of halo lore oh, knowledge. So, like, so in other words, like none of us, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. This is perfect for this fucking no, no, segment because you guys are never going to play it with me. It's just like the Expanse RPG. Um, yeah, the Expanse RPG is, in a, is a great example of a game I'll never play, but not an example of a good game. And I know next nothing about the Expanse, Kevin. But, um, pl- I mean, it, it, it just requires people to... Or it's best played with people who know the system so they can get into it. Probably but That's probably true of a lot of like uh, intellectual property-based games like this. I could do one more. Um... Okay, the one that I, I don't know if I'll never play it, but I'll probably never run it, is um, Unknown Armies. I know that we talked to, I asked the guy this question um, when we were talking to Greg Stolze about Unknown Armies, and I asked him how the fuck you're supposed to run it, and he was like, you know, you iterate on what your players are interested in, and you develop the game world based on that, and I was thinking, like, that sounds really cool if I'm the player, but it sounds really not fun from the GM, because I'm great at creating a world and forcing other people to inhabit it, not vice versa. That's like a, like a tenant of a lot of more modern, like, story games, that you're supposed to be, like, a collaborative effort. Uh, between the GM and the players. Uh, like on Apocalypse World, they call that like the conversation where you talk about like what you want the focus of your game to be. I think I mean, that game. if you have players who are creative enough um, and you guys have good enough like back and forth, you'd probably be able to develop something that you could work with. The Star Wars game is another game that I would love to play more of, but would probably never run. I'd love to run more of it. I just when I when I look at it, it seems like you know it's really fun. But then, um, like just building a stat block for a single enemy is such a pain in the ass. Dude, it's like building just, a you, you, stat block for ones that exist already. Right, but then it's like okay, I have to go through this library of of reference texts and pull out you know one that suits my needs. I know there's an SRD for it, so it's it's a little is easier. There's an SRD. There's a it's like not an SRD, but it's an SRD. Um, 
I think you can't even you can use. You can't even buy the PDF of the uh, Star Wars games because I guess Fantasy Flight's so afraid of like losing out their money that they're getting from the proprietary dice. That Fantasy Flight's terrible, but um, the because I got a bunch of stuff that I love. <laughs> all right, what? Just, we're all just gonna let that one go. What? That they're they're not good. No, I I do have um, I'll say this. Uh, their model of like being very ruthless about getting rid of underperforming games is one that I don't love, but I do understand because if you can't, if, if you, if you find yourself in a position where you have too many products that aren't turning a profit soon, you will have no products and there'll be no games for anyone because you will be dead. And so I think I, it's worth, worth noting that, uh, oh, sorry, were you done with your statement? I thought you had a break. Yeah, that was it. That was it. So, oh, so sorry. I was saying it's this. It's the same situation where a lot of Wizards of the Coast and their ab- absolute ruthlessness for the D and D brand can be understood as them reacting to the circumstances that caused uh, TSR to explode. It's a similar case. So I believe, and and uh, if someone, if I'm wrong on this, someone please tell me because it's what I've always put under the impression. But the reason they can't do PDFs is because the PDF would be a digital Star Wars item. And the people who make the Star Wars games hold the digital rights very, very, very tight. Yeah, you've talked about this before. It's it's, it's EA owns the digital rights, but EA, EA has no interest though, in like, publishing. Um, EA is exactly the kind of scummy company that would try and argue that a PDF constitutes an infringement of the digital rights to Star Wars games. Right. I, I don't even know if, if that's happened, but but because they don't own the rights, Fantasy Flight's not going to try it. So what you guys are saying is that they're the chaosium of Star Wars RPGs. You know, you'd think that wow. Disney could convince EA to broker a deal with Fantasy Flight if it Disney meant making more money. Disney can't convince EA to not make a bad game. Disney I mean, can't convince wrecked. EA to not cancel a good game. Correct. Look at the way they brokered the deal between Sony and uh, whoever makes the other Marvel Marvel Studios, I guess, for uh, Spider-Man. Because uh, up until, you know, a couple of years ago, there was like Sony was just creating bad spider-man movies so that they could retain the rights to the film i, I don't think it's a matter of brokering a deal between ea and fantasy flight i think it's that that would be like me kevin ham trying to trying to get a deal with the wizards i'm just not no one gives a shit i mean what the like, what the hell are you talking about disney's like got way more pull than you yeah disney is way well no, than no, EA. But, but i'm saying disney doesn't give a shit ea makes millions of dollars for disney fantasy flight makes a pittance it's like, so why even get involved? There's no value there. Does money EA money. actually make money, though, at this point? <laughs> I'm sh- I am sure. Yeah, EA they make tons of loot boxes. Company. Yeah, exactly. Legal gambling for children. I feel like I feel like they're one of the ones that um, like are ironically now at risk of the same thing they did to everyone else, where EA was notorious for if some of a student didn't meet its performance targets, they would ax them. But um, like, I don't know... Uh, Maybe, maybe I'm confusing them for someone else, but I thought that no, no, I'm confusing. I'm confusing for Activision. Never mind. Hey, Another so company I've, that fucking deserves what's getting. I've solved. I think I've solved Fantasy Flight's problem. Fantasy Flight. So if anybody from FFG is listening, uh, please credit me. It will not be the first time I've given you people good ideas and not been. Like royalties. Um, so uh, pay um, yeah, exactly. Royalties payable to like Greenbox. Uh, anyway, uh, what they need to do is release the next Star Wars system. Really, really the next Star Wars book really really blankly and then you have to buy booster packs and like loot boxes to get stats and rules and NPCs. That's literally what they did. They released things. the same book four times over and over again. <laughs> That's not true. No, it's um, absolutely true. They're 
you know, it's 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 and almost as bad as a 40k RPGs. Demonstrably untrue. Anyway, so then like you know, if you want to get the guy, uh, you want to get the cool item. You want you want to get the cool like you know sling for your guns. You can carry your gun better. Better buy those booster packs. Again, you're suggesting something as a joke that they already did. The sling was or, literally not in the core book. This is just what Wizards of the Coast does. They uh, absorb the cost, or like they're they're not making as much money off of the D and D franchise as they are off of Magic: The Gathering, which is booster packs. Yeah, I think you're missing my booster pack slash loot box. No, we understand that you have a joke about loot boxes in here, Kevin, but I'm telling you that that joke is actually what Fantasy Flight has been doing with their games for the last long time. And like, like I said, I don't begrudge them for having a business model that makes money because most people in the traditional games industry don't, and that's why they vanish. That's why they die. And P.C. Barnum once said, uh, suckers born every day. Well, Talking here's the thing. So, so to, to go back to... Um, like why I like the Star Wars setting. Um, there's like a couple of things that I would just want to run with it, but it would just be too much work to try and mechanically represent in the Fantasy Flight game. So the two that I had in my in my mind is that I want to do um, like a zone stalking expedition on Geonosis because in the new canon, Geonosis got nuked by the Empire for as punishment Good. for support. I mean, yes, on unironically, like give them exactly what they deserve, but. Here's the thing. You nuke a planet that has vast hive cities full of droid technology. All that shit's still down there. It's waiting for someone to go down there and pick it up. That's pretty good. So you go down on there, but then you have to deal with like Geonos and hive queens and killer robots um, and stuff. Mutated Geonos and hive right. queens. And then also just areas of like exotic radiation where the, you know, the neutron bombs interacted adversely because they would want to use something that had um, a lot of ground penetrating radiation because Geonos and hive cities were like underground. The atmosphere is well, already fuel, hostile too. Fuel air explosives. Well, no, because um, yeah, the Atmo mixture was different. Uh, or was it? I don't remember. Here's the thing. I'm not a planetologist, all right? I'm not light kinds um i don't you know uh, the, this, the big galaxy brain move is just to terraform geonosian i mean right yeah make it not bad but the first step of terraforming is to get rid of all the stuff that's in your way like all the bugs but the other one i would this do why the genesis device was genius because it's nope. both yes exactly drop it on chronos get rid of the clinks but that was what uh that was what they were afraid they were going to do well they should have been because that would have the smart move that was literally the galaxy brain move or the, the, iron, the, the supreme irony of that uh, of the, the TOS film arc is that after the Klingons destroy Genesis, then their moon blows up and their planet becomes uninhabitable. Right. They, they were like, oh shit, if, if only we had a device they could make a planet into an Eden again. But the other one that I uh, want to do is I want to do a Space Hulk set aboard the ruins of the Death Star. Because canonically, at least in the old canon, what happened to Death Star is that when the hypermatter reactor exploded, it... Um, sucked all the pieces into hyperspace and spread them throughout the galaxy. So there's just Death Star chunks in random places in the galaxy. And there's probably people still alive on board them hanging out and like trying to get a message out so that the Imperial Navy can come rescue them. Isn't that the trailer for the newest movie? I haven't seen I haven't seen any of the new Star Wars. Neither of those are like all the stuff to run those exists. You just have to put the pieces together. Right, here's the thing. You don't need to make your own up anything for that. I have to go through a thousand splat books. No, you don't. Just use the and adversaries page. If you have the PDFs, they're not going to be searchable. We just verified that PDFs, PDFs don't exist, and there's possibly no no possible way to get that information without paying money, right? Um, but more to the point that... Yeah, um, you're right. What PDFs? I don't have any Star Wars so PDFs. These aren't the PDFs you're looking for. But here's the thing. Uh, nice. well, what, what, uh, what would happen then is... Um, 
you get aboard the uh, the Death Star, and you, you know this, uh, this 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 would be running run using Edge of the Empire because that's the best one because it's uh, not about like memeing it up. It's just about you know being a cyberpunk Making criminal. Money. Yeah, exactly. But you get on board, and you're like, oh shit, there's so much good salvage here. Um, I can just like fly Tie Fighters out of here, you know, and just like that's you know twenty thousand credits ahead on the black market. Uh, but then there's people still aboard there, and that the um like the one surviving like Imperial Navy lieutenant is like. Um, you know, I'll, my family will pay you, you know, 50,000 credits if you take me back to Coruscant so I can get a message to the, to the Navy saying we're still out there. And, you know, you're thinking, ooh, maybe, maybe this is a good idea, but, you know, you can never trust Imperials because they might just, you know, have us executed. But then as you're kind of memeing that up, um, you know, maybe like the hypermatter explosion and the exotic physics attracted some bad creatures, like a, one of those space wasps that lays its eggs and eats radiation, or a star weird or something that sensed the void in the force caused by the deaths of all the Death Star crew. But then, as you're fucking dealing with all that horse shit, the rebels show up, like a Mon Calamari cruiser shows up and says, All right, everyone on board, we're going to fumigate this place, so you better surrender now. And so then they say to you, listen, sweetheart, um, we love that you're scavengers, but we're going to intern you because we can't have anyone telling the Imperial Navy that we're out here because we're going to salvage this thing. It's ours now. Nice. So cut all that shit where we meme about fantasy flight games and just put my super genius plot hook in instead. Or just cut all of it. Honestly, this section's not going anywhere. It's a lot. All right. Who else has a game that they would like to talk about? Well, you didn't finish talking about the game that you started talking about. Oh, Fantasy about, Flight? Unknown Armies. Unknown Armies. Um, Unknown Armies. <laughs> is that where you started? Unknown Armies yeah. is a cool concept, and all the, like, the media that I've read that has been like Unknown Armies has been great. I just don't want to um, do what other people tell me. It's shocking. This is a surprise to all of us. Yes. That's all we have this week. In the description of this episode, you'll find links to the R Night at the Opera subreddit and Discord server, and to all our various social media pages. If you've played any of the games we've talked about today, tell us about them. Thanks again for listening to The Green Box. Until next time, we'll be in touch. <laughs>